Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on the quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook, at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter and Instagram, at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website, at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. Hello, lit listeners. If you were one of those high school kids who spent hours holed up in your bedroom spinning your favorite albums on your turntable at ear-bleeding volume until your mama hollered at you to turn off that racket and take out the trash, and dreaming of blowing your one-horse town to become a rock star, this is the episode for you. Peter McDade is here to talk about his novel, The Weight of Sound, about aspiring rock musician Spider Webb, who at 18 announces to his parents that he will skip high school graduation and move to Athens, Georgia to launch his career in the birthplace of R.E.M. and the B-52s. Through rotating points of view and covering a span of over 20 years, the book traces the ways Spider and his music affect the people in his life, family, fellow musicians, girlfriends, fans, roadies, and music industry lackeys. As drummer for the rock band Uncle Green, Peter McDade spent 15 years traveling the highways of America in a series of Ford vans. While the band searched for fame and a safe place to eat before a gig, he began writing short stories and novels. Uncle Green went into semi-retirement after four labels, seven records, and one name change. Peter went to Georgia State University and majored in history and English, eventually earning an M.A. in history. His first novel, The Weight of Sound, was published by Wampus Multimedia in 2017 and won the Georgia Author of the Year Award for Best Debut. Songs by Honeybird was also published by Wampus Multimedia and released in 2022. Both books have soundtracks of original songs. Given Peter's cred as both writer and musician, he's doing double duty as both author and music guru in this episode. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Peter. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Your former band, Uncle Green and the guys in the band Monkey Hole in The Weight of Sound, play mostly 90s indie rock, so I'm assuming that's your jam as well. I also know from the blog you write on your website that you love Prince, as do I. Yes. So when I I saw that, I thought, yeah, this guy's coming on my show. I don't care if his book sucks or not. (laughs) It's just an added bonus that it's a great book. Thank you. But anyway, so I'm jonesing to find out who else is on your music radar. So let's play a set of five questions. Great. What's the first album or record you bought? It's very timely this week, but my first purchase of my own was Rumors. As soon as you said timely, I knew you were going to say Fleetwood Mac. It was Rumors. It was a uh, sixth grade. And my sister had a copy, but I couldn't keep borrowing her copy. So I had to throw down my own hard money um, and just listen to it endlessly. You know, the weird thing is Christine McVie just recently died, as we all know. I was reading your book. I was finishing up your book. And I took a little internet break to see what's going on in the world and learned that she had passed away. After a little bit, I went back to your book, and, and I kid you not, the first thing I read was on page 122 when Danny is humming along with a song from Fleetwood Mac's album, Tusk. And I thought, yep. this is very strange. <laughs> 
Um, Rumors is a great album. I can listen to that over and over now. So timeless. I can too. And, and Tusk also, at the time, I got it like the day it came out. And mm. it took me a while because it's so different. Yeah. But that's one to this day I can listen to because it's so, so many levels to that. And her song over and over starts it. And I just love that song. You're a musician, and you played your fair share of live gigs. What's your most memorable live music experience as a fan at a show? As a fan, it's the first time I saw Prince. And it was oh. the tour for the uh, Symbol the album. Yeah. And he played the Fox here in Atlanta, which only holds about 4,000. And I didn't get tickets, but I had a friend who worked at the Fox. And she's like, there's a seat in the third row of the balcony in the middle that no one bought and it's all by itself and I nabbed it for you and he came out that's a good friend right Lisa (laughs) Mattis thank you Lisa (laughs) and he came out and opened with my name is Prince which is the first song in that record um and there's something about watching somebody who just completely owns the entire venue, like from the moment they come out and they know it and you know it and they know you know it. And for the next two and a half hours, it was just like, it was amazing. The band was super tight. You know, they did a lot of songs off that record and then launched into all these other classic. It was just, it was mind blowing. Take a peek at your bucket list now and and tell me what artist or band you'd love to interview and what question you'd ask. And this can be living or dead. We're in fantasy land. As a drummer, I'm always interested in talking to drummers. Um, My first thought was Ringo, but I feel like there's a lot of Ringo interviews. um, And I love them to death, but I've heard a lot of Ringo stories because I've watched so much stuff. So I'd like to interview Bonham. Uh, John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, because to me, Bonham still, I'd ask him about the way he could get swing in the drums, even as he's hitting so hard. And um, he's known for, in the studio, he was very good at, we call it playing the way he wants to be mixed. So he played the way he wanted to record. So we would hit things, certain things harder or softer than others. It's almost like pre-mixing it for the engineer because it was just basically done the way he wanted to. Like this, for a guy whose personal life seems so out of control, 
his plane was so controlled, like he really seemed in command. Um, And he drove that ship. You know, I know you're a big Zeppelin fan, so that's like. Yes, I am. um, It's a very complicated ship to drive, but he did it. And I'd also ask him about his, the way he, he followed the guitar instead of the bass. Bonham is famous for often trying to follow Page and go along with the rhythms there. As opposed to always locking in with the bass player, which is a, a different way to to approach it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when you see live performances, you see the two of them really watching each other. Paige and Bonza really yeah. watching each other. I hadn't thought about about it that way, but yeah. What's on your playlist now? Uh, well, I'm about to go see a band called The Smile, and um, I'm a big Radiohead fan, also. And The Smile is two of the guys from Radiohead with a different drummer um, and they're playing here at a small place in Atlanta. And I've had tickets. I'm kind of excited about that. So I'm listening to that a lot. And I'm also still listening to a lot of Prince because I'm working on my blog. I'm working through all of his albums chronologically from beginning to end. You'll be busy for a while. I am. It's taken a long time and I'm, I'm at emancipation. Okay. So it's, three CDs um, that I've got to kind of digest and figure out how to, it's turned into a very interesting writing exercise because there's so much to say. The key is to kind of whittle it down to the stuff that's most important for that record. So sometimes I'm not even talking about some of my favorite songs. I'm trying to get across what's unique about the particular record that I'm, I'm listening to. I think the blog is great, and I've I've read the entries. They're they're short. Most of them are fairly yeah. short. So you are zeroing in on these really specific things, and that's what makes it so interesting. And and any any Prince fans out there, you need to go to to Peter's website and read the blog because it's really interesting. Thank you. So you've written two rock novels, "Songs by Honeybird" and "The Weight of Sound," which we're going to talk about shortly. If you were writing a third and had to feature a real life artist or band in it, who would it be? This also came to me just recently because I decided, of course, I was trying to pick about drummers because I think drummers uh, as almost sort of quarterbacks of the the band, right, make very interesting ways into the band. And I thought Mick Fleetwood has been through so much, right, because he he and McVie were the, the steady presence in that band. So you've got the whole like 60s thing happening. With Peter Green, yeah. And then the 70s over-the-top indulgence megatour thing <laughs> happening. And then the 80s financial crash, drug problems, interpersonal dramas. And then it comes back at the end where they reunite and go back on to Like, you know, there's so much there. I think he would be a great uh, filter for all of those time periods. He'd just be a great character, period. I mean, you look at him and he looks like he's out of his mind. Yep. It's either the coke or he's just naturally that way. Yeah. But what an interesting and tall character. And looms Oof. over the kit. Mm-hmm. And also, again, for such a really tall guy, and like physically you would expect him to play a certain way, but he and McVie, they're, they're all about the groove when you listen to those records. Yeah. It's like sometimes he's just keeping like – a kind of straight groove that kicks on all four. And like, it's nothing fancy, but it's just like floating along. Um, if listeners want to go, I, I would say, go listen to uh, You Make Loving Fun, that McVie song. 
And the verses of that are just like super, almost slinky. And the kick is just going. It's a very hard thing to pull off. Um, so I think he's fascinating. Okay, listeners out there, anybody writing rock <laughs> novels? We've thrown down the gauntlet. It. Yep. <laughs> let's take a short break and we'll be back with Peter McDade. In the meantime, let's hear a little Uncle Green. This is Peter McDade, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. And we're back with Peter McDade, author of The Weight of Sound. Let's just get this out of the way. As you know, because you've already said, I'm a big Led Zeppelin fan. I love, love, love Jimmy Page. And I know you have a Jimmy Page story, so you have to share that here on Rock is Lit, a podcast that would not exist if Jimmy Page did not exist, by the way. There we go. So um, I think it's a pretty restrained Jimmy Page story. I was, uh, my family and I, we're going from London to Paris on the channel and we're in line and literally the next line over is Jimmy Page. And it's that thing where it takes you a second because you're like, your brain has to process that it's actually seeing what you think you're seeing. And I watched some young guy come up and like, you know, just ogle all over him and get an autograph. And I thought, I could do that. I really want to do that. But also, like, I've got my family and, like, he just wants to get on the train. But we made eye contact and I gave him a nod and he gave me a nod. And then we went our separate way. And I'm like, that, that to me, like, I'm hoping that it, what I got across in the nod was like, dude, you made my teenage years bearable. Like, those records and having those records to listen to 
was something to do after a really crappy day at school. So thank you very much. I'm hoping that Nod got all that across. I'm thinking that Nod said all of that to him. I hope so. And, and I'm thinking that Nod you got from him is going to last you a lifetime. I still see it. I get it because he only said two words to me when I chased him down the hall at the Hammersmith Palais and said, Jimmy, I came all the way from America just to meet you. He said, I'm sorry. In my mind, hey, we met. We're best friends now. Yep. You know, we're having tea and crumpets next week. Yep. I get it. Just that little bit of contact. It was a good moment. Yes. Moving along here. You started playing drums when you were eight and spent most of your 20s making records and traveling in the country. You said that one thing you never wanted to do is make a solo record. The exact quote, I believe, is, I have never wanted to try and out Ringo Ringo. (laughs) As a follow-up to that proclamation, you said that you consider the weight of sound to be as close to a solo record as you will ever get. So tell me a little bit about how long it took you to write that novel and get it out, and how close to your own experience as a musician is it? So it started just as um, a series of short stories. Um, and in fact, the first story I wrote isn't in the book. It's, it wound up being tossed aside. Well, it has to do with a guy named Bob, doesn't it? That's right. It is on the, it is on the website. Um, and a friend of Bob shows up with a tape from this band, Monkey Hole. And I just began to... I became interested in what happens almost like, you know, it's, you can tell it's an old story because at first it's just a cassette from a practice. Like if I follow that music into the lives of other characters, like what will I, what will I find? Um, And once I had three or four stories that I thought were pretty good, suddenly it occurred to me that I could actually create a, a universe to, Mm -hmm. to build that on. Um, I don't know if you ever read any at Robertson Davies. He's a Canadian author. No, I haven't. And he writes these trilogies. So there are three novels and a minor character in one will be a major character in the next or vice okay. versa. And I thought, well, I don't want to write three. I don't have three novels in me at this moment in my life, but <laughs> almost that idea for short stories, like a minor character in a story will later on get a chance to kind of move forward for a little bit. Um, And can we kind of build out the universe of this music? The music is almost a consistent character in all the stories. Um, And it's, the challenge was to not make it exactly like my own life. Like I didn't want to write a memoir. Um, So instead of making the primary band a a four-piece, I made it a trio. Um, I always like power trios. I think it's very a very interesting dynamic. Um, you know, Zeppelin is almost a power trio. Um, they have the lead singer, but musically, live, right? It's just those three instruments. Right. Um, and I thought, well, if I make it a trio, then um, no, there can't be a one-to-one correlation between the drummer. And so I kind of basically took all the musician friends I have and tried to grab little interesting pieces from each of them and just arrange them in a new combination. Um, so it's sort of like I'm a little bit in every, all the musicians, but also not really like any of them, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. I know one thing that really is 
art imitating life. In the novel, one of the members of Monkey Hole becomes a history teacher like you, only he teaches high school. <laughs> yes. Some of the students decide to Google their teachers, which at first I, I, I was laughing. I thought, oh, that's so funny. And then I remembered I'm a teacher and I was horrified. I started Googling myself where they're going to find. Anyway, the students find out their teacher used to be in a band, Monkey Hole. That actually happened to you. It did, yes. At, uh, I teach college history. And um, I walked in one day and somebody held up their phone and hit play. And an Uncle Green. Oh my God. <laughs> and an Uncle Green song began to play. I'm like, all right. Well, I guess the secret is out. Starts with an apology, then works his way down. Really, all they wanted to do, though, was talk about the hair, because there was a picture, and I used to have some, I consider some pretty impressive hair, you know, back in the day. Um, <laughs> so, yes, it was it was very interesting. It, it made me think that, you know, I'm hoping what they got out, right, since we're history in that class, like, you know, everybody has a history. Like, I did not walk into this room having not done anything else. Yeah. And I try to remember that you students have walked in here, right? And everyone has a completely different story that has led to this moment. Um, I can't hit play and <laughs> pull up all of your music, but you know, it's it's out there somewhere. This happened, I gather, before you wrote the novel. This incident yes. with okay yeah. with the college students. Yeah. All right. I was wondering about that. Was that life imitating art or art imitating life or <laughs> how that? Worked out with the time sequence. The novel, actually, the weight of sound came out right around that time, maybe. But it was so it was already written. Um, and when the novel came out, as I was, I was teaching college, I was thought like, "Well, now I want you to Google me because maybe you'll go buy the book." But you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, no one's done that yet. Mm. <laughs> well, you don't know that they may have. True, true. They, I don't they, know. They yep. probably have. Yeah, go buy the book, kids. Exactly. Go by the book, all Peter's <laughs> students. Going back to that scenario in The Weight of Sound where the kids out their history teacher, so to speak. Um, it, it brings me to my next observation about the novel, which is the idea of forgotten bands and underground or lost albums. There are these two teenage boys in the novel who discover Monkey Hole like years after the group is disbanded. And they get the band's one album, which they just go crazy over. It's like their little secret. They don't tell anybody about it, except for well, one character shares it with this other fella. But Monkey Hole becomes their obsession in a way. And I'm, I'm kind of flashing on Dana Spiota's novel, Eat the Document, which deals with lost and underground film and music. But I'm, I'm wondering, is there a band or an album that you stumbled across as a kid that just knocked you out, that nobody else was listening to? I'm thinking of a couple that people passed me cassettes of. Um, there's a band called Television, which is not super yes. underground. I love Television. You can imagine, right? And you can imagine a kid growing up in the 80s in Jersey, like this is before the reissues on CD and stuff. It was just somebody getting a hold of their his brother's vinyl and making a cassette to hand it to all his friends like 
you've got to listen to this. Um, and also uh, Big Star. Yes. And Big Star's third, which is this the super moodiest one. Um, somebody gave me a cassette of that. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> I've never heard anything like this. And to know that it's out there and like if it's not on the radio, you know, I couldn't walk down to my local Woolworths, which is where I had to buy a lot of records in my town. Like, you know, it was was very hard to find. But the idea that it's an interesting idea that music is out there and that you can somehow, if you're lucky enough, stumble across it and be kind of kind kind of a the small, you know, insider group that knows something other people don't know. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first learned of Robert Johnson, and I, I was, I think you and I are around the same age. I was born in 1969. And so I'm a teenager in the 80s, and nobody, I'm going, you got to hear this guy. This is just amazing. And, you know, nobody's, nobody's interested in that. It's Madonna nope. and what have yep. you. So it was, it was, I, I could relate to these kids having this music that nobody else is really familiar with. Or even gets. Yeah, it's it's the combination that, and even if you pass it on as somebody, it then takes another s- select group to to get it to be like, oh my god, you know, to fifteen seconds into that television album, you know, see no evil is the first song, and that guitar riff began. I'm like, Jesus, what is this? Like, where did this come from? And how come I've never heard it before? There's a soundtrack that goes with your novel, both of them actually, but we're going to talk about this one. I think it's a terrific concept, especially for music and literature nerds like me. And this is a chicken and the egg question. Which came first, the music or the novel? The novel came first. You know, I had the stories and there was this reference to this song, like I needed a monkey hole song. When I write, especially early in the drafting, it's nothing is planned. It's, I usually draft just with characters sitting around talking until something happens. And so the song title Gardenia came out and a little snippet of lyric. And then there was another story that also mentioned the song. And once I had a pretty good draft, and once I began to think, like, I'm going to revise this and really try to publish it, I thought, well, it'd be a lot of fun if people could hear Gardenia. Could you hear it in your head as you were writing? Did you know what it sounded like? I knew it began with just guitar and vocal. Right? And so I could, like, I was more not fully in focus yet. Like, I had a general vibe for that one. Um I didn't quite know how the chorus would come together, but I knew it would have to be big. Yeah. You know, that the chorus would kind of open up. Right. So luckily, I have indulgent friends and friends up for adventure. 
And Jeff Jensen, who was in Uncle Green with me and who I've known since third grade, um, he's somebody I can send a message to like, so would you want to write the music for a fictional band for a soundtrack for a book that may not even ever get published? But I don't know, it could be <laughs> kind of fun. You know, and 30 seconds later, he writes back like, yeah, let's do it. And 24 hours later, he had a demo of this song. Not sure if you saw me, I blend into the crowd. I know you can't hear me, my eyes don't talk so loud. But you should know, I've been looking at you, you should know I have some questions for you. We recorded it and we built this thing up. And I'm like, that was so fun. And there were a couple of others at this point. And then my kind of like obsessive planning mind took over. And I'm like, well, so I have 12 chapters. And it might be a, a way to help me as I'm revising, kind of get everything more into focus to go back to the idea of focus. If each chapter has a particular song that is kind of the focus for that chapter, well, that means I have to write 12 songs. <laughs> Wind up with 14, no so the last songs have to have two, the last chapters of each side, so to speak, have to have two instead of one. I worked it out, and I mean, the hardest problem was just organizing musicians to do something is um, exhausting. And especially, God bless them, they're all doing it for free. And we're recording remotely because the technology is so much better than it was when we were first making records. Like, mm -hmm. I can get sounds in my house, drum-wise. It's, it's not really as good as a studio, but it's also better than, like, the first studio we went into, you know, in 1987. Like, it's, it's come a long way. So to get all these people to come up with all their parts and in a timely fashion was a bit exhausting. That's incredible that you could even do that there. It was fun. And I have to say, the soundtrack is fantastic. Thank you. The Taxman song, um, Pay Me Now. Yep. And it, it's supposed to sound like Taxman because yep. that's the influence for it yep. and for Spider. And that's what he was going for with that song. And you, you nailed that. That's spot on for Taxman. It's great. Yes, it, and, and that was written by my friend Paul and was like, you know, I tried to match the songs with the people who I thought would get whatever the particular song was going to be. And like, because you want it to sound like Taxman, but also to also be its own thing. Like it's a young band that you can still hear their influences, but you can hear the beginning to go somewhere else with it. Mm -hmm. No, that comes across. Definitely. Good.
Susan Rebecca White, author of the novel A Place at the Table, said your writing in The Weight of Sound is as tight as John Bonham on drums, speaking of Led Zeppelin. Now that's some praise. (laughs) But drummers take a beating in your book. There are drummer jokes the characters make. Where do you go to find a drummer in Athens? Dominoes. They're referred to as insecure. Somebody says no one listens to drummers when they're not behind a kit. In one of Spider's chapters, he says this in reference to a groupie he comes across in Barcelona. It's a quote. There's a friendly glint in this one's brown eyes, though, and a face that registers more than a few steps above drummer level. Ouch. (laughs) Now you're a drummer. Are you just taking the piss here or is there some truth to that? (laughs) Oh no, it's uh it's it's embracing the it's embracing what I know to not be true. Okay. Right. So I um the drummer jokes I've heard my whole life and I think they're funny. Um and I think that sometimes, maybe less so now, but I think sometimes from the outside, yes, people think quote unquote just a drummer. But you talk to any musician in a band, right? And they know that the band is only as good as the drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some things you can cover up from, but um, obviously everyone in the band has to be good and work together and all of that, but the, the drummer has to match the songs. Does that make sense? The drummer, um, he's, he's the player who really has to you know, Bonham would not have worked in the Beatles, right? Right. And Ringo right. would not have worked in Led Zeppelin. It might have, but it would just be a different band. Um, you know, I think of them as constantly playing the song, right? So uh, getting back to Bonham's ability to hit really hard, but still swing or to have a song where he doesn't hit really hard. So it, it's, 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 it's not really dissing drummers. I obviously... I love drummers. My best friends are drummers. Um, <laughs> um, it's just uh, just kind of having a knowing laugh at it all. And fair enough, you know. And the drummer in this particular band goes through some some challenging times. Yes, he does. What do you think makes a great drummer? I think knowing when to play and knowing when not to play. Um, I think having such a strong sense of time that you can screw around with the time when you need to, um, I think listening to the song, which seems kind of obvious, but not necessarily. Um, I, I teach now, I love all my students. If you're listening. Um, but sometimes <laughs> they can be bored if I'm making them work on a particular song because it's not super flashy. Um, back to make Fleetwood, those songs are not super flashy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the chain is basically, you know, just driving on the floor the whole time. But when the fills come in, they're just right. And the mood of the song is captured in the drums that he's playing. I think being uh, super chill is very helpful because 
I love all my guitarist and singer friends, but they can be a little <laughs> high strung sometimes. It's very good if you have a drummer who can not necessarily mediate, like that might be too much pressure on the term, but just be able to literally roll with what's going on and to be able to not um, get swept up in it. Like if you've watched uh, the Get Back documentary. Oh, yes. Amazing. And there are moments where Wingo is just sitting there with his eyes shut. I and, know. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I have been there. Because you've got three strong personalities debating X, Y, or Z. And it's like the last thing the room needs at that point is Ringo piping up with some fourth option. Because all three options are good and they're going to work it out. And your job is to listen and just, you know, every now and then they will turn to you like you'll need to break a tie and, and get your ideas in. But maybe reading the room is part of it then too. It's like knowing when it's time to, to just shut your eyes, take a deep breath, relax, and not make things any more tense than they already are. When Spider's looking for a drummer for a monkey hall, he describes what he's looking for as a love child of John Bonham and Ringo Starr. And a lot of people denigrate Ringo Starr and just call him a simplistic drummer. What do you think people are missing about Ringo? They're missing the, and it's hard to describe it. It's a thing that can't be quantified. Maybe that's what they're missing. Mm. Um, they're missing the feel, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. There is a, a a vibe, there was a feel to him playing behind the kit where you know as soon as he begins to play that yeah. it is Ringo. Um, he's playing the songs, right? So something like um, Rain is an amazing song with fills out the wazoo and that's what the song worked best at. I'm sure they've tried it lots of different ways. For me, if you're going back, because they just reissued uh, Revolver so it's on my brain, which is my favorite Beatles album, by the way. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. To me, she said, she said is, is still one of the best Ringo tracks because of the, the way those fills work in and the song keeps rolling even as he's doing all those kind of little syncopated offbeat fills. <laughs> I think they're looking at a, a kind of silly at times guy behind a relatively small drum set and thinking, eh, you know, I could have done that. And actually like, no, there's, there's probably like one human who could have made the Beatles work as a drummer. And it's luckily for them, they, they found him. Yeah. And I, I had a friend of mine also reminds me of Charlie Watts. I had a friend who put together a long streaming uh, tribute concert to Charlie Watts. So I learned 24 Stone songs. And again, deceptively simple, but actually mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a lot going on there. 
And to come full circle, Charlie and Keith are very much like uh, Bonzo and, and Paige. Like, that's the core right there. And if you look at live clips, a lot of times it was Keith and Charlie locking eyes because that was the, the heart of the song, the music right there, the way those two fit together. Well, talk about chill drummers. They don't come any chiller than Charlie, Charlie Watts. <laughs> right? He's just there. He's just there. He's just there. And they're never going to be the same without him. I, I do wish no. they had the same way Zeppelin did after Bonham. I, I wish the Stones had just said, you know what? There's no Charlie. So there's no Stones. Changing gears a little bit. In Spider's chapters, especially the first one, he offers some interesting words of wisdom. I'm going to throw a few at you, and I'd like you to give me your take on them. Here's the first one. People with backup plans always use them. That one really resonated with me. <laughs> it's, it's very spidery to me, if that makes sense. Like that is uh-huh. uh, certainly um, I have learned to have backup plans as, as a parent, as a teacher, right? You go in, you said you teach. There are some days where you're like, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And after five minutes, you're like, none of it is working. The room is dead. <laughs> I'd better go to something else. Um, yes. But I also can relate. When we were young, we were really deciding to go for it as a band. And this will be hard for our parents to hear. But like, none of us signed up for college courses or anything because it was really important to be like, we are jumping off this cliff together. That is what we are doing. And if anybody had this idea that we're doing something else, like you might not take that final step off the cliff. Um, and Spider never had another backup. Like, you know, Spider, that's why it's very spidery to me. He never went to, <laughs> to plan B or C. He, he had one thing he was going to do. Here's another one. A good band can and should look like a democracy as long as everyone knows that one person calls all the important shots. That was funny to me. <laughs> and, and it's also true. I mean, a, a pure democracy with the four of you, in our case it was four, um, the chance of a four-way tie or a two-way tie are pretty intense. Um, and we had two songwriters, and very early on, it became clear to all of us, almost without being spoken, but if there's a debate about a song, and no one can agree, the tie will be broken, and it will be broken by the songwriter. So it's, it's a democracy, but at the same time, it's not. Um, right. And get, sort of gets back to what makes a good drummer too. It's like, unless I'm the main songwriter and singer, right? Um, for me to expect and demand equal voice in deciding whether or not that bridge should modulate up or not. Like I, at some point I have to accept the fact that that is, that's not my call to make. Okay. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can help with the set list too, but at the same time, if we're going to do these particular two songs in a row because it's easier to sing that way or it's a tuning thing, like it's at some point, it's not my, my call to make. 
but it's very important you think it's a democracy <laughs> right you know the, the illusion keep the illusion yes, yes and and in many ways it was but you know at the same time even our own country is a democracy but it's not exactly a pure democracy true that right there are two more in the spider's words of wisdom All right if you're if you're not going to take ownership of the show, no one in the crowd will want to buy it from you. <laughs> so I'm assuming this has to do with the, the job of the front man. Yes. I, I mean, and the band in general, too. Um, I feel like, um, I think this might, I can't remember whether this made the final cut of the book or not, but they go to see a band at one point who is not. Yes. Confident. Maybe that's where that, the, that's where that okay, comes excellent. from. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. Good. So that that was yeah. That's where I wanted it to be. Yes. Um. You can tell. I can tell. Even I think on a recording, like this was a band who was owning this sound at this moment, or this was a band who was wondering whether or not this works. And you know, when you walk into a club, you can tell. Like it, can't, it doesn't all work on the same level as Prince. That first moment where he came out, like. We are in your power. Like, you know, we are under your control <laughs> for as long as you say. And that came to me. I remember the moment where I realized this um, was early in our career. We were touring with a band called Trip Shakespeare um, out of Minneapolis. And two of the guys later formed Semisonic with Closing Time. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. And they were playing Atlanta. So maybe we just had gone to see them that night because we were friends. And like they were in their encore, so it was almost time to end. And they're kind of holding the final chord and maybe people think it's all over. And the lead singer got to the microphone and said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, we're not not done with you yet. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You're in, we're not in control. Like you are, you're in control. and it's very important for that relationship and for that confidence, right? That swagger, yes. which might not come off as, you know, you know, it doesn't have to be Mick Jagger prouncing across a, a stadium swagger, but there has to be something in there that says, like, I, I'm here. I think it's... And you know it when they don't have it. Yes. It's so... Exactly. It, just, it makes all the difference. It makes yeah. all the difference. And I think... It's something I've taken on to teaching also. Like, you need to be in control of that room. Yep. We've all been in classrooms where the teacher is, like, as soon as they walk in, you're like, oh. <laughs> oh, maybe you should think about a different career. Maybe you're just having a bad day. But, like, they are going to run all over you, man. Or they walk in, and even it's a class you don't want to take. And this algebra teacher in college, I did not want to take algebra. I hadn't been in college in I hadn't been in a, in a math classroom in 15 years because I didn't go in my 20s. But she walked in and was just like, boom. She was in control. It was interesting. And that show, that, which was the class, you know, that hour and 15-minute show was like, it was a smash because she took control of it. Let's take a quickie break and hear another track from the soundtrack of The Weight of Sound.
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. There's another character, Jimmy, the road manager from Monkey Hall, who also offers some words of wisdom about touring. Here's some of them. Never stay at Motel 6. Watch out for women with wrists thicker than yours. When the record company says, we're all behind you, boys, you know things are really bad. Everyone will get sick at least once, and it won't happen in Boise or Iowa City or the other Jacksonville, the one in Alabama. Someone's going to get sick in some important city where lots of radio and press and record company dweebs are expected to be at the show. I'm assuming these are hard-won lessons learned from years of your years of being on the road. Yes. Um, <laughs> Motel 6 was always the worst. Um, the rooms were always dirty. They were like a little smaller. So like, especially early on, when, later on, we each got our own bed, which was just like amazing. But early on, when there's four of you and two to a bed, and it's like the bed is literally right against the wall. You don't even have that light, like little inch where you can kind of stick your arm off. Um, everybody gets sick. I, I still remember playing San Diego opening. We were on a, a tour with Matthew Sweet. And so they're all really good crowds. But I was so sick. And yet, for 45 minutes, you've just got to get out there and do it however you can. Um, it's just how it is. And I also remember being backstage in L.A. and somebody from Atlantic saying, I'm going to be your soldier. We're all behind you. And it's like, oh, shit, we're doomed. Run. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's like saying, bless your heart in the South. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what it was like. Yes. Right. So I get all that. I get the Motel 6. I get all that stuff. But the women with wrists thicker than yours? What's up with that? <laughs> oh, that was... Now, that never happened to me. Um, that was... <laughs> I was... I was trying with these to also get across Jimmy. Um, right. Okay, yeah. And so that, that's... To me, of all of them, I'm glad you picked that one out. That is the... That's the Jimmy line. Does that make sense? Okay. Right to try to yes. add something that, um, all, that's his that own only thing. that particular character would say, um, because there are a lot of archetypes in the book. Right, there's a roadie, road manager archetype, but I'm also trying to make them um, more complicated than that. Yeah, um, you know, because road managers are fantastic creatures, and they can do magical things. But they also, back to everyone having a history, they also have all this stuff that you don't always know about. Um, you know, maybe you hear about them in the van or they feel like sharing, but sometimes it's just like, 
he was recommended to you and he's really good at his job. And a lot of times in the van, you don't feel like talking or sharing. You're just sleeping or reading a book or just trying to pretend you're not going to be in a van for the next eight hours. So, you know, you don't always bond. Well, since we're talking about touring, when Monkey Hole is touring in the book, they play this game called Only Pick One. And it's a game to to break up the boredom of being on the road. And I'm guessing this is something that you probably did when you were touring. For old times' sake, let's play a game of Only Pick One here on Rock right. Lit. So I'm going to throw some stuff out at you. So we'll start with bassist. You can get, I'm going to list three and you can only pick one. John Paul Jones, Bill Wyman, or John Entwistle? Oh, John Paul Jones. My man. Drummers. John Bonham, Keith Moon, Ginger Baker. Notice I left out Ringo. Uh, Bonham. Yes. And actually for me, Keith Moon, just personally, is it, too busy. It's just not my... Okay. Well, he was it's, just nuts. It's not my thing. Um, of those three, Bonham by, by far. Okay. Singers. Robert Plant, Freddie Mercury, Chris Cornell. Oh, Freddie. Freddie. Yes. I love Led Zeppelin, but Freddie Mercury is God. Yep. Yes. I, yeah. I also love Led Zeppelin. Um, but the range and again, no diss to Robert Plant, who was amazing. Yeah. But there's a variety there within that one voice, right? This, the different styles, the way it could be stacked, which is just not something they did with Plant. So we don't really know that he could have done it, but you could stack Freddie 10 times with 10 different tones and pitches and... Just have that tool. Okay, trios. Cream, Rush, or the police? Oh, interesting. Um, my answer will... Oh. <laughs> Here's the thing. Of those three, like the police records are the ones I would probably listen to more often. Yes. But I'm so glad that Rush existed. Um, and as a teenager, that was my, my jam. And again, that's a drumming style. That's not particularly mine. Um, but it also, there's a documentary about them called beyond the lighted stage, totally entertaining. And they're just like the sweetest humans that ever made a whole bunch of money playing rock shows Mm. ever. Well, Getty seems like a nice guy. And they got along so well. And no offense, but if I, if I pick the police, I'm stuck with Sting. And <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot going on there. So I'm going to go with Rush. Fair enough. Here's the last one. Guitarist. Really think about this. Think right. about these choices. Jimmy Page, Jimmy Page, or Jimmy Page? <laughs> I can't choose. You can't just choose one of the Jimmys. We'll go with all three then. Jimmy times three. Yep. Before we move into the last segment, let's hear another song from the Weight of Sound soundtrack.
There's a lot that I learned about the music business from the weight of sound, and most of it's pretty depressing. It all underscores one of the central issues in the novel, which is voiced by high school senior and bass player Lucas, who is trying to decide if he should go to college or move to Boston with his band after graduation and try to make it big. He says, and I quote, What happens if being a great band is not enough for us to make it? And that's the thing that just kind of runs right down the middle of the whole book. And the harsh truth is that that's often the case. It doesn't, you can be a great band, you can have a great sound, but because of the business, that doesn't mean you're going to make it. So let's talk about this. I don't want to get too specific about Monkey Hole's experience because I don't want to give too much away. So let's stick with your band. Let's stick with Uncle Green's experience, which, right. like Monkey Holes, primarily took place in the 1990s. You started out playing gigs. Then what happened? What was the progression? Um, we started playing in high school and wrote a bunch of songs. Like these guys, yeah. Yep. And then had a, a teacher, uh, a music teacher in senior year. We took music theory together and she had us play for the class when she found out what a band. And I remember her talking to us afterwards and saying like, so what the hell are you going to do? Because you're really good. But if any of you thought about what happens next, and we're like, oh, I don't know. Um, so we came to visit Atlanta. We were in Jersey. And one of the guitarists had a sister who lived here. And this is Atlanta. Had a lot of disposable jobs at the time. Was pretty booming economically. Had some pretty good clubs. We took a VHS of us playing in somebody's attic. Okay. To the to the then happening club here in town called the Six Eighty Eight. I don't know how we happened to catch the guy coming out the door. He watched a song and he must have thought like these eighteen year olds from Jersey jumping around on this VHS in somebody's attic. He's like, yeah, we got we got an opening Tuesday, two months down the line, opening on a Tuesday night. So we moved down for one gig, mm. and then just started playing again luckily had a few older like the brother-in-law the the sister who was down here he sat us down one night after dinner he's like we're going to come up with a timeline because you need to figure out what you're going to do and we got our first manager who didn't stick around for too long but helped us put out a first record there's an indie label here in town called db records and uh, they put out uh rock lobster yes was their first release so they had the they had Pylon, they had uh, B-52s before they moved on, lots of great bands, and talked to Danny Beard, who runs it, and if you're listening, Danny, God bless you, he put out records number two, three, and four. These are full LPs, not EP? Yeah, full, el- full albums. And then the fourth record did well enough to get assigned to Atlantic. And so you think you've made it, but really you're just... You've just leveled up on the video game, but there's still levels above you. That was what I was going to say, because you, you do think if you get a major record deal, anybody who hears, oh, they got a major record deal, thinks, oh, you've made it. And that's nope. not exactly... I mean, you have, and you've made it a lot farther than most. Um, but you still have to then have that record sell and there's machinery behind you but it doesn't mean it's going to sell 
And so he put out one for Atlantic, toured the country, great time, demos for the second, not picked up by Atlantic. So I tried to find a new label. Our producer was doing well enough. His name is Brendan O'Brien. He produced the Black Crows records. He produced uh, some Pearl Jam records. And he got, a, he got a deal through Sony. So we signed to his label through Sony. Sold a lot, but I thought were a lot of records. But not enough. Um, and so we were going to try again. Almost signed with another label, and the guy got fired. At this point, it's like we're 30. Somebody's wife was pregnant, and it's, it gets back to that question of we had a meeting, the four of us, like, so for, for whom among us is this still the thing all other things are sacrificed for? Mm -hmm. And the answer was yes, for only one of us. So my friend Matt went off and made another record on his own. Never came out. Also a great record. And... You know, we moved on. Dag, that's depressing. It is and it isn't. I mean, it is. At the same time, I, I can say that I played, what, 45 states in the country. It sounds exhausting. It just sounds exhausting. It can certainly be exhausting. At the same time, it's not the same model. So our model in the 80s and 90s was pretty much major label or nothing. Yeah. That was the only machinery to, to sell enough to make it all worth it because it was so expensive to make and produce records. That is no longer the case. And so you can have, say, a band like Wilco. You started off with a major label model. They now own all their masters. They get a distribution deal for each record. They don't sell a million records each time, but if you sell 100,000 records, but you are controlling the recordings and the profits you can actually make it's what prince did mm -hmm. um you know for those deals we signed the old model was and the major label model probably still is we sign we get a certain amount up front we don't make any royalties off the records until everything is paid back so recording studio fees marketing then we get 20 cents on the dollar that we share amongst us and our management. And the recordings themselves are still owned by the label, even though we have in essence paid back for them. So it's a, it's a terrible model. Very hard to break through. It's why bands that sell a lot of records don't typically don't get royalties until the second or third record because you're still paying off. The first. Well, I know your focus has shifted from the music world to the literary world now. So you've got two books out. We've been talking about the weight of sound. How are you feeling about how things are going with that? Luckily, having been through the musical ringer, I'm, I'm enjoying being at the stage of my life where it's not like I don't want the book to do well. Obviously, I want it to do well. If you're listening to this, please go buy multiple copies for all of your friends. <laughs> But um, I'm, I really enjoy the, the process. I enjoy the writing process. I enjoy getting to talk about it whenever I can. 
And so, so far, these first two, I, I feel that success. I feel like I managed to make the book that I wanted to. And that's all you can really do. I've learned that from the music industry. We, we made the records we wanted to. There's still a chance that someday somebody can hear it or read it, you know? And it exists. You've done your job. You made it. You made what you wanted to make. You found a way for it to get into the universe. And you really do have to accept at some point that aside from seizing all the opportunities you can, all you can do now is is go make another one. That's fabulous. And you have to come back on Rock is Lit and talk about the next book. Well, thank you. I would love to. Well, we're going to end this interview with this statement that Spider makes in an interview with the website, The Weight of Sound. Here's the quote. For the record, my father made a lot of mistakes, but at the end of the day, he played revolver for me when I was five and changed my life. I'm interested in what your version of that statement would be. So fill in the blank. For the record, my father or mother made a lot of mistakes, but at the end of the day, he or she blank when I was blank and changed my life. Got me drum lessons when I was eight. I had not asked for them, but evidently I was tapping like a son of a bitch all day long. (laughs) And she thought maybe I should get this kid drum lessons. And so she saw something that I had not even been able to verbalize yet. And the first time I held some drumsticks, I'm like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Like, this feels right. What a gift. Right? Amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Peter. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. This was fun. For more information on Peter McDade, go to his website, peterjmcdade.com. You can also find him on Twitter at peterjmcdade. Pick up a copy of The Weight of Sound and his other novel, Songs by Honeybird, at your local indie bookstore or wherever you buy books. So I forced a drunken smile and lied like his best friend. Promised him that she and I would make it till the end. Now don't you worry, don't pay no mind. We're doing fine. And that's a pause for one second because it's Friday night, so it's takeout night. And I need to order... Dinner for the teens. Dinner must be had. All right, all right, Cheeseburger, fries, Sprite, shake, two grilled cheese. Check out. All hail DoorDash. No, don't you worry. Don't pay no mind. We're doing fine. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.